Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, I pray for grace as I expound these things to your people, wonderful things from your word, things pertaining to the transformation of Saul into Paul, the salvation of his soul, him being brought into the church that he had, not long prior to that, persecuted, raged against. We thank you for your power to convert any sinner. We thank you for the testimony of this brother. And we thank you for the fact that he stood upon the testimony ultimately of Christ and not his own. We thank you for your grace manifest in this man's life and help us to glean what we must from his example once more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been a very long time. Since we were last in the book of Acts, I actually looked it up, and it was Sunday, October 30th of last year. We took a break. We went through a series examining the roles of the different sexes from the book of Proverbs, and I trust that that was fruitful. I know that from a number of you and your feedback, it indeed was. But this afternoon, we're going to finally resume our regular exposition, and this means picking back up where we last left off, which was... Acts chapter 9, which contains the testimony of Saul and his becoming Paul. Now, because it has been so long, it seems only prudent to me to begin by briefly reminding you of where we were. So I'm going to give you a brief run-up to Acts 9, and then after that I will read the first 19 verses to you, and then we will begin again thorough exegesis at the end of verse 19, as that will mark for us new territory. But going back to the events of Stephen's martyrdom, Saul of Tarsus is credited in Acts 8 with ushering in the advent of an age of ferocious persecution. Acts 8, starting in verse 1, this is right after Stephen's martyrdom, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 3 But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Now, wars can start all different kinds of ways, sometimes by decree, or sometimes even as a result of a miscommunication or an accident that's misunderstood. But the war of greatest consequence, which is the open, bloody conflict between Satan and Christ's church that has been raging for these 2,000 years, was begun by the man who would later become Paul the apostle to the Gentiles, 
author of half of the New Testament and the greatest missionary in the history of the church. Again, on that day, the day that the then Saul oversaw the murder of Stephen, there began a great persecution. By the time of Stephen's trial, tensions between sides had grown to the point of an imminent eruption. But even with all that pressure, it still takes somebody being willing to fire the first shot, and Saul was that someone. He pulled the cork, and everything that came after it became inevitable when he did. All hell broke loose, and I mean that literally. But from here, Luke's narrative shifts focus until Saul once more re-enters the story in Acts chapter 9, and we will briefly review the opening section of this now. Acts 9, starting in verse 1, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now Saul, as we noted numerous times, was effectively the Sanhedrin's favored son. And he is here poised to storm the beaches of Damascus in their name as their great emissary, as their great conqueror. But then in a dramatic turn of events, the great conqueror ends up being conquered himself. Verse 3, as he was traveling, it happened that when he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And as I said to you when we went through this originally, I believe that part of the reason why he's not eating or drinking is that he's experienced tremendous trauma. But Saul has at this point been converted, and if that is not readily apparent to you from what occurs in the text, then uh, Ananias' response to him will make it clear. Verse 10, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, because he is already a brother, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, And he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. So here is Saul's situation. He was thrown violently flat on his back, rendered blind, made to feel his weakness for a period of days. Now he has regained strength physically and spiritually, and that is where we are. So now that we have been reminded of these things. Let us begin to move forward in our study once more, picking up 
at the end of verse 19, and then we will exegete and apply this phrase by phrase as we go. Now, for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Now, first off, I'd ask you to please note that very little time has elapsed between Paul's conversion and his arrival at Damascus, and this has a number of consequences. And one is that there's no being prepared to be confronted with this sort of change for the Jews in Damascus. But if they could have been prepared for it several days, per verse 19, surely would have been insufficient to allow for that. So there's no way to overestimate the extent to which this shocked the system. This is definitely a nine on the Richter scale, if not far greater. And that's exactly what God intended it to be. We are so accustomed in our day because the church is so impotent to seeing the church be put back on its heels by the advances of Satan. This is what happens when God leads the charge. They are back on their heels, reeling from one event to the next, to the next, to the next. And one of the issues we're settling on for a moment from this passage, which is made more impactful by the short period of time between conversion and evangelism, is Paul still called Saul's level of certainty about Jesus being the Son of God. It was just days prior to this that young Saul was so certain that Jesus was a farce and that his followers were dangerous blasphemers and members of a cult that he was totally at ease about standing before Yahweh, having cut them down like grass. Now he is so certain that Jesus is everything that he claimed to be that he is willing to effectively commit sedition and to do it publicly. This is, in fact, what has happened. This is a religious state. There is no separation of these things. Powers that be in religion are the powers that be politically. And he has openly defied them all. Consider also here who Saul is. He was, by his own description elsewhere, a zealot. But zealots can be more consistent and they can be less consistent. Paul, or Saul, prior to becoming Paul, was uber-consistent. He was a picture of reliability. If he had not been, then he would not have risen to the position that he had risen to. Almost certainly a member of the Sanhedrin himself. You don't get there by being fickle. So this man's far from a moody teenager or even some starry-eyed idealist who doesn't really know what he has committed to and spoke too soon and overcommitted. He knows the consequences of what he's doing. You know that he does, because up until 10 seconds ago, he was the harbinger of those consequences upon others. So Saul being Saul, how certain must he be to do this? Well, certain beyond the shadow of a doubt. But why is Saul so certain? Well, of course, because of his experience. Because of the bright light and the being thrown on his back and, and all of that. But if that is the primary source of his certainty, why then does that not become the primary case in his argumentation because his argument at least in the immediate is not experiential his argument is theological verse 20 again and immediately he began to proclaim jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of god and couple this also with verse 22 which we have not gotten to yet saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the jews who lived at damascus by keyword proving that this jesus is the christ 
And say, by the way, what did he use to prove this? Well, he was using an encyclopedic knowledge of the Old Testament that only just made sense to him right now. Saul, prior to his conversion, had an exhaustive knowledge of the biblical texts. That's the reason that he was able to hit the ground running as he does. But all this knowledge prior to this time amounted to disjointed fragments. Or if these bits and pieces did form a cohesive whole, then that whole was in reality irreconcilably inconsistent because that is what the Old Testament is without Christ at the center of it. And it's also a damnable lie. But now all these passages have converged and were harmonized into Christ is Yahweh and Yahweh saves. And so a Christian apologist was born and one who was perhaps second only in the history of the church to Christ himself. No doubt Saul's apologetic is moving from Adam to Abraham through Jacob to David to Isaiah and proving from their testimonies that Christ was the Messiah, that Christ was the unique son, meaning son by nature, meaning son of God and son who is God. That is how the Jewish leaders understood it. When Jesus claimed this of himself, that is how they understand it now. And that is the intention of Paul. But this is his message. And the nature of his message is my point to you. It is all Jesus all the time. And this is really profound, considering that Saul has the greatest conversion testimony ever without a close second. All those months ago, when we were last in the book of Acts, I raised to you the notion of a redemption arc as it commonly occurs in literature and cinema. Do you recall this? Well, good for you, because that was a long time ago. But the the antagonist becomes the protagonist. The villain becomes the hero. We love these stories. I said in, in works of fiction, my favorite uh, was Ebenezer Scrooge. Okay, the miser becomes the great philanthropist and caretaker of his fellow man. But this isn't a work of fiction. And this is in the category of eternal implications because it pertains to the gospel and the work of God. Uh, without question, when you measure his impact, he has the greatest conversion testimony ever. But he is not using it here. Instead, he is testifying of Christ, which is really strange because I've known ex-cons turned evangelists who travel the world and tell their story, are paid large honorariums, and of course there's a little bit of Jesus in it. If it's a 45-minute long presentation, 40 minutes or so will be devoted to I was such a bad person, bad person, bad person, bad person. And then they sprinkle a little Jesus on at the end, ex-prostitutes, sex workers, drug addicts, detransitioners even now from the trans cult will engage in testimonials like this. But Saul stands in contrast to these. He doesn't want to talk about himself. He just wants to talk about Jesus. Now, personal salvation testimonies are not wrong to share, and I've stressed this in the fact in the past, they are in fact essential. And one of the reasons why they're essential is because Satan very effectively creates classes of irredeemables. He does this with sodomites mostly, and now with those, as I mentioned, from the trans cult. And so he, he cultivates this belief in that group of people that they cannot be saved. And so when one is, their testimony becomes very, very important because it sets that uh, down is a lie. And personal testimonies must also be shared because we're trophies of God's grace. Our salvation testifies of God's goodness and His power to save. 
They are, in effect, the personalization of behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. And the manner of love that has been given to you can only be understood fully in light of the wickedness that you laid upon Christ who was crucified for you. But the purpose of a trophy, which we in Christ have become, is to testify to the greatness of the victor, not the splendor of the emblem, if even through some backdoor falsely humble means. So it's not that we should never share our testimonies, but as we do, there are a couple things that should be remembered. First of all, the purpose of my testimony is to teach others to better relate to Christ. It is not to teach them how to better relate to me. And if that's the ultimate end or the greater end, then you need to not engage in that way. Second, critically, it isn't my testimony that has the power to save. It is the testimony of Christ and him crucified. Thus, Paul will later write, Romans 1, 16 through 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, as reticent as I generally am about putting words into the mouth of the apostles, any of them, I think I can offer to you an explanation of Paul's silence in Damascus concerning himself in light of Romans 1.16 that is accurate enough to have potentially been able to come from his mouth. And it is this. I can tell you about Jesus, so why the heck would you want to hear about me? And all this in light of the palpable curiosity in his hearers. Again, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Inquiring minds want to know, Paul. How did you get from point A to point B? Well, in reality, they know already, don't they? Paul didn't have to say a word about the bright light. He didn't have to offer a dramatized first-person retelling of the events of just a few days prior. Here was the firstborn son of the devil now risking everything for Christ. And so even without the details, you don't have to try real hard to understand the nuts and bolts of what occurred. But even so, perhaps the fact that Saul has the greatest testimony ever and for the majority report forsakes it to testify only of Christ tells you everything that you need to know about him and also about the nature of conversion and the proper perspective of every Christian when it comes to this. A little while ago, I had somebody, and it's been quite a while now, but I had somebody come to me and ask my uh, opinion on something of a gospel track that they had put together and whether I thought it was good or not. And I was less direct then than I am now. I've learned in time, whether I learned the right lessons, I'll leave up to others, I guess, but I've learned in time to be more forthcoming. And um, so he gives me this gospel tract, and there was no gospel in it. It was the story of his becoming, effectively. It didn't even have in that enough Christ to save someone. You can give the gospel through your testimony. This wasn't doing that. And in hindsight, that man demonstrated very clearly from his behavior that he, in fact, was not a Christian. If I had a mulligan on that one, I would have said there's no way that a Christian gives this and claims that it's the gospel. This is as spiritually intuitive as it gets. If somebody has done for you what Jesus has done for his sheep, you're going to talk about Jesus. 
But if, on the other hand, you have a form of Christianity without Christ, it is very possible that you will find a way to use the name of Jesus as justification to tell your story instead. But to do it in a way that passes muster with those who don't know better. But because Saul is not telling his own story but Christ, he is imbued with power by the Holy Spirit of Christ. Verse 22, but Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. There is this irrepressible power of the Spirit coming out of him. Does that sound a little bit like Luke's commentary on somebody else from not that long ago in this narrative? Acts 6, 8 through 10, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now this is, by the way, not the only aspect of Saul's testimony in this passage that we're looking at today that parallels Stephen's nor is it even the clearest parallel between the two men's ministries. But what is clear already and will become clearer yet is that Saul, who murdered Stephen, is put right back into the place that Stephen left vacant, complete with the same irrepressible power of the Spirit. Now, Stephen was a tremendous witness for God, and nothing that I'm about to say is intended in any way to detract from that. But Stephen was not an essential witness for God. And likewise, Saul, who became Paul, was unparalleled in his contribution to our people. But he wasn't an essential witness either. Christ made Stephen. Stephen did not make Christ. And that's why when Christ took Stephen home, he was able to make Saul and put him right back in the place that Stephen had just vacated. And this offers to us a tremendous lesson. You and I live in an era of Christian celebrity which, as I've said before, is the least coherent category of celebrity because we're just servants who serve other people, teaching them how to serve other people. It's also nonsensical because there just aren't that many of us compared to the population of the world writ large. All right? You're not going to be well-known if you rise to the highest ranks. There are no big fish okay? because this isn't a small pond. This is like a puddle with tadpoles at best. They don't know you. They're not going to know you. If you want to rise to celebrity, you should have done it in some other sphere because it's not going to happen here. But it is also worth acknowledging that even amongst the believing, there cannot be Christian celebrities because celebrities are uniquely great. They are uniquely able. They are intrinsically exceptional, be they musicians or artists or whatever. That dynamic's not at work here. For all that can be said of Paul in particular, none of those things can be. Everything good in Paul was put there by Jesus, and Jesus was just as able to have put that in somebody other than Paul, as Paul himself made very clear. 1 Corinthians 15, 9-10, I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, Careful again, though, to qualify. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. In consideration of Saul's evil, Paul's righteousness could no wise be ascribed to anything but the grace of God. That again is the point. Notice also there that there isn't a trumped-up 
protracted, dramatic retelling of Paul's past. He doesn't spend 40 minutes of 45 minutes telling you all about what he was. He just says, I was wicked, but enough about me back to God, whose grace alone has made me and placed me here to serve you. By the way, that's how you tell your testimony, if you're going to tell your testimony, and that's why. Because your testimony, at best, is a stepping stone to Christ. It's not a landing pad. But if we are made what we are by God as we are, then he could have just as well have made somebody else. And these 2,000 years later, we'd be talking about the Apostle Jim and all of his great exploits and his righteous deeds and his evangelistic zeal and how he brought the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, here is a great but seldom overlooked fact of Christian ministry. I may and must take credit for all my failures in ministry. Those are all mine. But all my successes belong to the Lord Jesus because those are not mine. And they would have been wrought by the sovereign God just as well without me, if not better. Stephen was not essential, therefore another arose in his place. Paul was not essential. Austin is not essential. You are not essential either. You are loved. You are cared for. You are one of Christ's dear little lambs. But you are blessed to be used by him in this season that he has appointed for you to be used in. That is the nature of the Christian life and of Christian service and ministry. Moving forward in the text, verses 23 and 24. When many days had elapsed, that would be three years, according to a parallel accounting of this in Galatians 1, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. And then going on in verse 25, Saul says, Here I am, come kill me. I live only to die. I can do no other than submit to the tyranny of the ruling class. By the way, tis such a shame I haven't written Romans 13 yet so that I could violently yank it out of context and abuse it. And say, by the way, has Peter written 1 Peter 2? Because then I could take that and manipulate that and twist that too to give Caesar all authority in heaven and on earth as though he were God himself. Wait, I'm sorry, I got confused. Verse 25 actually says, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. It turns out that Saul was not so ready to forfeit his life to a tyrannical government under this absurd notion that we must at all times submit all things to them. But as I was developing this, it occurred to me that at this point I might take an angry and unproductive rant that was overly lengthy. And so now I will simply force myself to move on from this concept and instead highlight the fact that Saul was enormously polarizing. In just the few verses that we are considering today, this is the first time that we see uh, the severe effects of him kicking up sand, so to speak, but it's not going to be the last time. But I do want you to consider the conflict that he is creating in light of his teaching about how to approach people in general, lest we become confused and misunderstand him and what's actually happening here. 
Romans 12, 17 through 20. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Let me ask you, does that sound like a man who's looking for trouble? To me, that sounds like a man who, who I can hardly believe finds any trouble in this life. Who would want to create conflict with a person like that? Now, how about this? 1 Corinthians nine twenty through 23. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. That is one of the most grossly abused passages in all of Scripture. But if I can oversimplify what he's saying there, let me just say... That's him effectively communicating. If it's not nailed to the floor, theologically and doctrinally speaking, it's expendable. Christ and him crucified is, is um, not negotiable. Truth is not negotiable. But what we're eating, how we're dressed, cultural uh, customs and things of that nature, I'll give it all up. It's not sacred to me. It's not sacrosanct, this day or that day, this tradition or that tradition. I will lay them all down if I may communicate more effectively to you things concerning Jesus. Again, this isn't a guy that's looking for conflict where there needn't be any. And the reason that I raise this is to remind you that there's no way to be a faithful Christian and avoid conflict. Even understanding that conflict is in many ways actually contrary to our nature. Those things that Paul is writing, he is writing consistent with the teaching of Christ when he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. That's who we are in terms of our being as Christians. And no servant of Christ except for Moses exemplified this better than Paul. And still he has been persecuted now to the point of fleeing for his life. Because while Paul is by nature a peacemaker, he has not been placed in a peaceful world. And he has been given a message that brings sinners into conflict with their natures, and that brings them into conflict with Paul. There is only one way for Paul to guarantee peace in this world, and it is to so dilute his message that it loses all power to save sinners. And because he will not do that, they hate him. And the same dynamic is true of us in our day. Don't boast about the fact that the pagans love you, that you are accepted by them, if indeed that is true. It only reveals your unfaithfulness, not the fact that you are somehow more loving than Jesus, who they murdered after three years. Moving forward in verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. Now, we should note at this point that this is wise on the part of the disciples, on the part of the apostles. They are taking wisdom principles about association and discernment from Scripture, many of which we 
observed not long ago in our series through Proverbs, and they are applying these in a sensible, prudential way. We are always in a very real spiritual war, but for them the war was so intense that they were ever aware of this reality. We are so often lulled to sleep by notions of peace, peace, when there is no peace. They were far too much in the fight to forget that there was a fight happening. And so when the artist, formerly known as Saul, the great persecutor of the church, showed up and said, hey, I'm a Christian, they very wisely said, no, no, you can't come into the Bastille. Uh, You can't make copies of the blueprints and lists of our personnel. You can't have those or lists of our munitions things that would help you destroy us on account of we're not fools and we don't trust you. They're not wrong to take this position. And this whole idea is very foreign to us because in our day we conceive of Christian charity as accepting everyone in a way that permits them to cause our churches great harm on the basis of a mere profession when what we ought to do is wait And yes, when possible, seek references from people we really know and can really trust to operate as character references and to this point enter Barnabas from stage left. Verse 27, but Barnabas took a hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus and he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of Jesus of the Lord. So here you have an understanding about the reservations of the apostles. They were not a matter of a lack of faith. They weren't some kind of unforgiveness. This was them being charitable and loving to the sheep that were under their care because they didn't want a wolf in sheep's clothing coming in and tearing them all up. This is Peter tending to Christ's lambs. But the moment that they knew that Saul had really been converted through the testimony of Barnabas, everything changed. And this is a consequence of Barnabas' well-established credibility with the apostles. Barnabas' given name was actually Joseph. Joseph was a Levite, if you remember back to Acts 4. And Joseph the Levite was a man worthy of the nickname Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. But if you recall, back in Acts chapter 4, Barnabas had gained all the credibility he would ever need when he relinquished all of his future financial security to the church. He was the precursor to Ananias and Sapphira. He was the one side of that, the one uh, that they were juxtaposed against. He was sincere, and they were insincere. And so he gained credibility, and uh, they gained the grave. And he takes that credibility that he has gained and leverages it to encourage the apostles to receive Saul as a brother, and that they immediately do. And here we are reminded of the true nature of Christian forgiveness. And so this dovetails nicely into the CE hour. Now Stephen, step back for a minute. While he was alive, he was family to this church in Jerusalem, spiritually speaking, for some of them, I'm sure, biologically speaking. A brother, their son. And their only apprehensions in receiving Saul was, is he actually converted? 
Or is he simply playing the part in order to gain their confidence and then later uses access to harm them? But if he is converted, they have zero reservations when it comes to forgiving him and having him sit around their tables and breaking bread with them and interacting with their children and their loved ones. And it should be noted here that what they are trusting is not actually Saul. I don't trust any person's capacity to change enough to ever give a murderer access to my loved ones. And I don't care what anybody says if they try to say that that's not Christian, that that's not charitable. I don't care. I never will. I don't believe in the power of the human spirit to overcome these things. I have zero faith in that at all. But if it is proven that God has done the changing, oh, then they are my brother, and I theirs, and all that I have is open to them. If this is demonstrated over the course of time and wisdom is employed, then they belong to us, period. Doesn't matter what they came from. Here is Paul expounding the nature of the church, Romans 12, 4 through 5. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So the church, again, is not a patchwork of parts. It is a cellular level connection that binds us and bonds us together. We are not an organization. We are an organism. So am I saying here that we should adjoin ourselves to murderers or offenders, transgressors of all different kinds? No. I'm not saying any such thing. And God forbid that anybody would say that one such as that should be adjoined to the bride of Christ What I'm saying is, Saul in Acts 9 isn't a murderer. Saul at the beginning of Acts 8 was a murderer. Saul in Acts 9 is a new creation. Because as somebody whose name escapes me currently once wrote, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away and new things have come. And that is why, according to Paul in Galatians 1, they celebrated his inclusion in the church. They quote, glorified God on account of Him. Now what I wish to convey to all of you now is that if there is anyone here who believes that what they were prior to Christ keeps them from really being a part of us, friend, we are one body together with you. How can we be separate to any degree? Um, But I was. You can stop there. That is sufficient and you are correct. You were. And if there is anyone here who says what I am keeps me from ever being able to be a part of them, well, in this case, you're not entirely wrong, but neither are you right. Well, you cannot stay as you are and become a part of us. Christ bids you come and die. Or as some other biblical author said, with a little application from me added to, Come and be crucified with Christ and no longer live, but let Christ live in you. And then the life which you live in the flesh, you will live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. Galatians 2.20, indeed, that was Paul. And then will we accept you? Well, I have a little bit of a problem with the framing of that question because I don't understand how we could do anything but accept you. What other option would we have? We, for our own part, were made members of the body. 
We don't make members ourselves. If I am an arm, and that's my place in the body, I don't spawn a hand as a matter of my will, and then that hand doesn't spawn fingers. And so members of the body don't spawn other members of the body. We don't make other Christians. This is the work of the head, and the head is Christ. And so it's not for us to make, nor even really to receive, but to recognize that you have been made and have been received. We are not the adjudicators of who is or who should be. We recognize the work that has taken place on behalf of God. That is all. And if manifestly that work has taken place, then in the name of Christ we will take you absolutely. Without reservation. You are ours and we are yours as all of us are Christ's. And you will have peace with us But as was true with Saul, peace with us and peace with God means war with the devil. Verse 29, and he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. Well, that was quick, and you may not have picked up on how quick that was, but again, in that parallel account in Galatians 1 and verse 18, when Paul retells this story, this was all of 15 days. took 15 days for Saul's presence in Jerusalem to become untenable. I do want to mention here that this isn't because he was more faithful or forceful than Peter and company. This is purely a matter of political expediency. And we encountered this when we went through the account of Stephen as well, didn't we? If you recall. Why were they willing to murder Stephen when they were not willing to murder Peter? Well, going back to the testimony in the book of Acts, they were afraid of Peter's reputation. Peter was a leader Okay, And at this point, considering how poorly that whole situation with Jesus had gone, they have a tenuous grasp on power at best. And so having an uprising incited by murdering one of their prime leaders probably not going to be good for them politically. They are proxies of Rome. And if they don't rule well, they'll be removed. So they're not going to go after Peter. They will definitely go after Paul. Because Paul, as far as they're concerned, is nobody. And then they have this added incentive uh, in that Satan, you may have noticed, hates nothing more than a detransitioner. Nothing. Whether they're detransitioning from atheism to Christianity, he wants to cultivate, to continue this belief that those people, again, cannot be redeemed. In light of Paul's testimony, that whole notion just looks absurd. If he can, anybody can. So there is additional malice when it comes to him, far greater than there ever would have been with somebody like Stephen even. Speaking of Stephen, who was Stephen evangelizing just prior to his martyrdom? Acts 6, 8 through 10, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, those would be Hellenistic Jews, because Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew. And some from Cilicia and Asia rose up and argued with Stephen, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen was a Hellenist. These were his people, and they were a subset also of Saul's people. 
And so that means that the last time that Saul was in the present company, it was to lead them to murder Stephen, and now he has returned to the scene of the crime to finish what Stephen started. Last time he was in that place, he was stepping over Stephen's dead body right after he'd led them to bludgeon him to death with rocks. (laughs) Who in a hundred years could conceive of this plot? Who in 2,000 years? Who but God? But continuing in verse 30, when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. Because he had become a burden to them? No. Because they had come to love him and sought to protect him. And the result of all of this is recorded in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. In the world, Saul was at war. But in the church with his brothers and his sisters, he found family. And a family like no other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of studying it. We thank you for the grace that it is to be back in the book of Acts. I thank you for the privilege to just preach Christ. I do love the book of Proverbs, Lord. But I love how directly Christological the book of Acts is. And I thank you for this, and I thank you that we, your people, can celebrate your work on this Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Illyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.